Hello, folks. Spring is here, and with the coming of spring comes a variety of new opportunities. Speaking of which, if you haven't heard episodes from the rest of the Chilling Tales lineup, why not start today? Don't miss the latest episode of Drew Blood's Dark Tales, airing on Fridays. And, of course, don't forget Horror Hill with Eric Peabody, Fear from the Heartland with Paul J. McSorley, and, of course... Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. You can find them all at the simplyscarypodcast.com network on YouTube or your favorite podcasting service. Or be sure to visit the chillingtalesfordarknights.com website and become a patron and hear extended episodes from our vast audio archive. Join us for a while, won't you? <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening! You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome, dear listeners, to Season 12, Episode 21. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and in this episode, I'll be performing four tales to terrify you, courtesy of author Finn McCool. Tonight we'll hear stories of deadly dive bars, interrogations gone terribly wrong, terrifying TV and phantasmic phone calls. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now... It's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So, lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show's about to begin. <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. 
Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Ever have a little too much to drink and found yourself waking up not quite knowing where you are or what you'll see? Never happened to me, ever. Not even in the summer of 95 outside of Baton Rouge. Absolutely nothing you need to check with these Well, here we have a young man whose bender has gotten a little out of control and he's about to wake up in a situation he could never have imagined or wanted. Without further ado, I present to you The Bar at the Edge of Eternity. Don't ask me how I got there, because I can't remember. I'd been drinking heavily that night out on a bender to end all benders. I was angry, and the booze didn't help. Never did, if truth be told, but I couldn't stop myself. I vaguely recalled downing shots in a busy bar and making an ill-advised pass at an attractive young lady who was out with her boyfriend. Needless to say, this didn't go down too well. After that, the rest of the night is something of a blur... I remember waking up in the squalid back room of a dark pub, my head throbbing and mouth tasting of vomit. Punches were thrown and I was forcibly removed from the premises. My body was probably covered in bruises due to the fight, and my clothes were ripped and soiled. All in all, I was in a pretty sorry state. What's more, I had no idea where I was. I didn't recognize the bar and I... Sure, I'd never visited this establishment before. My first impressions weren't great. I'd been in some dives during my lifetime. This place was amongst the worst. The couch I woke up on was filthy. The tired wood floors beneath me were suspiciously sticky. Meanwhile, my nostrils were filled with the mixed odors of spilled alcohol... Cigarette smoke and something fouler which I couldn't quite place. I was sitting at the back of the pub facing the bar on the far side of the room. I fought through the pain inside my skull as I sat up from the chair, struggling to adjust my eyes to the bar's dark interior. The place was quiet, nearly abandoned in fact. It was a faint background noise, a weird and slightly irritating low buzzing sound that reverberated around the room. I couldn't place the sound and didn't know where it was coming from, but I decided not to worry about it for the time being. I slowly walked toward the bar and surveyed the room, confirming that it was nearly, but not entirely, empty. There were only four other customers besides me. The young man sat directly opposite me, glaring menacingly in my direction. He was clean-shaven but had long blonde hair fashioned in a mullet, and he wore a shiny red shell suit and white trainers. It was like he'd just stepped out of the 80s in a theme party. I saw a beer bottle on the table before him, 
the 80s guy wasn't touching his drink. He continued to glare at me, making me feel uncomfortable. I don't know what this guy's problem was, but if he didn't quit staring at me, there'd be trouble. In a darkened corner sat a middle-aged woman drinking alone, sipping from what looked like a glass of brandy while smoking from a cigarette holder. She was a redhead dressed in a fur coat, tweed skirt, and high heels. Again, her look wasn't exactly contemporary, and I reckoned her clothes came from the 40s or 50s. I reckon there must be a fancy dress party on or something. From looking at this lady, I reckon she probably had a drinking had taken its toll, with heavy bags evident under her eyes and her teeth stained yellow, likely from years of heavy smoking. She stayed in her corner, not interacting with the other patrons, or looking in my direction. I decided to leave her in peace. Next, I turned my attention to a couple perched on stools at the bar. They sat nearby, the man's arm stretched across the woman's shoulder, as they whispered to each other. The woman laughing softly at her lover's jokes and suggestive comments. In keeping with the bar's apparent theme, the couple looked out of their time. The man wore a pinstriped suit and a fedora-style hat, while the dark-haired woman was dressed in a glamorous, shiny cocktail dress. The woman was elegant and attractive, and her intelligent green eyes marked her out as much more than a gangster's mom. They both looked like they'd stepped straight out of a 20s gangster movie. The man had his back turned on me, but I caught the young woman's eye, temporarily interrupting their flirtation. Suddenly, the man turned to face me. He seemed to be in a mean mood, and I noted the deep scar across his cheek and the barely suppressed rage behind his dark eyes. The hell you staring at, kid? He spat angrily. I'm not usually the type to back down from a confrontation, but something was menacing about this guy, and besides, I had no beef with him and didn't need a hassle. <clears throat> Sorry, pal, my bad. I answered, raising my hands defensively. Just watch yourself, buddy. The gangster scowled. Fortunately, he seemed satisfied with my submission to his alpha male status and returned to his lady friend, although I noticed how... She shot me a coy smile over his shoulder. Finally, I looked at the barman for the first time as he walked forward to greet me. Good evening, sir. What's your poison? He asked in a friendly tone of voice. The barkeep was an unremarkable-looking man with thinning gray hair and a pot belly hidden underneath a checked shirt and denim jeans. His brown eyes looked tired and world-weary, though his voice sounded surprisingly kind and welcoming. Um, I probably shouldn't. I replied sheepishly. It's been a rough night. <laughs> so I can see. He said with a smirk, looking me over. But hey, don't, we don't judge here. By the looks of you, I think a large whiskey's in order. Hair of the dog, as they say. What do you reckon, my friend? I laughed nervously as the man's amicable nature slowly put me at ease. Well, go on, then. You've twisted my arm. I answered. I reached into my pockets, only to realize my wallet, as was my phone, was missing. I must have lost them, both during the course of my bender. I swore, drawing the barman's attention. Ah, I'm sorry, pal, I don't have any money. 
The barkeep shook his head and smiled as he finished pouring my drink and placed the glass in the bar in front of me. Uh, don't worry, my friend, he said. This one's on the house. Then we can start a tab depending on how long you decide to stay. Now, relax. Take a load off, kid. Uh, okay, thank you. I replied whilst taking a stool and reaching for my glass. I still felt uncomfortable about the whole situation, but thought I'd take some time to get my head together and perhaps see if the friendly barkeeper would front me the cash for a taxi home. I was working my way up to asking him when the barman picked up a remote control and switched on the old television set above the bar. That's when things really got weird. We spent a few minutes flicking through the channels, showing a series of disturbing scenes, mostly hardcore pornography, or acts of extreme violence. I'm not usually the squeamish type, but some of those images were truly sickening, depicting brutal murders and scenes of torture, all very graphic and realistic. The barkeep paused his channel surfing for a moment, watching a sadistic talk show where two zombies tore chunks out of a guest, ripping his throat out with his teeth and nails. And as this violent murder played out, the studio audience cheered enthusiastically as a smiling presenter addressed the camera. Thankfully, the barkeep soon got bored of this grisly program, and he switched channels once again, ultimately settling on a soccer match. It all seemed fairly normal until there was a close-up shot of the action, and I noticed the players were kicking around a severed human head instead of the ball. Jesus, I swore, turning away from the TV in disgust as I reached for my glass and took a large gulp of hard liquor. I don't know if it was due to the circumstances, but that drink was the best I'd ever had. The barman kept the match on in the background but turned the sound down. There was no music playing in the bar, only white noise. That irritating and slightly disturbing buzzing that seemed to be gradually growing louder and more intrusive. I was feeling pretty uncomfortable by this point. Not wishing to draw attention to myself, I scanned the bar room, anticipating that I might need to make a quick exit. I noticed then that the room had no windows, and the only lights were artificial. There was a door behind I noticed was securely padlocked. Now, this didn't bode well. I frantically looked to the rear of the room, noticing a back door that appeared to be unlocked. I made a mental note of this while surveying the room. The walls were adorned with disturbing pictures. Photos of disasters and violent incidents. Everything from the Hindenburg crashing in flames to Buddhist monks burning on the streets of Saigon. These scenes of mayhem, destruction, and tragedy only added to the menacing atmosphere. Furthermore, my fellow patrons continued to act very oddly, particularly the young man in the shell suit, who was still glaring angrily at me from the far side of the bar. I shook my head, overwhelmed by the insanity of my surroundings, as I reached for my drink, downing it in one. Care for another one? asked the barkeeper. I nodded my head in the affirmative, knowing I shouldn't, but somehow finding myself unable to refuse. What the hell kind of place is this? I asked incredulously. The barkeeper smiled ever so slightly before answering. 
Well, sir, technically speaking, this is a she-bean. That is to say, any earthly government authority doesn't officially license us. But despite our disadvantages, we try to offer a comfortable experience for our patrons before they move on to the next phase. Okay, I responded with a puzzled tone. Frankly, uh, his so-called explanation only raised more questions. A comfortable experience? Here? Really? And what did he mean by the next phase? I was about to ask him when events interceded. Suddenly the man in the shell suit shot up from his chair, pointing accusingly at the barman and screaming with an intense rage. You're an idiot if you believe a word that bastard says, he shouted, whilst continuing to point at the barman. His dark eyes were full of hatred. Now, sir, the barkeeper replied calmly, there's no need for that kind of language. Screw you, he shouted at. You're the one who keeps us here. I'm going to make you pay. He lifted his beer bottle in a flash, smashing it against the table, creating a weapon from the jagged edges. Next, the shell-suited thug cried out as he overturned the table and charged towards the bar, his improvised weapon in hand. I instinctively jumped up from my bar stool, preparing to defend myself from this crazed attacker. The barman was way ahead of me. I glanced across in time to see him pull a sawn-off shotgun from behind the bar, quickly aiming and firing at the attacker. A muddy blast from the gun reverberated throughout the room as the buckshot tore into the attacker's belly, throwing him backward onto the filthy floor. Blood was everywhere, and the poor bastard's guts were spilling out all over the ground. He screamed in shock and agony, the color rapidly draining from his face, as he tried in vain to shove his intestines back into his stomach. Meanwhile, the barkeeper re-aimed, firing again, this time blowing the man's head clean off, splattering brain fragments and skull all across the room. Jesus Christ, I squealed. I never learns, the barkeeper said calmly, emptying the spent cartridges from his shotgun. He just killed him! I screamed in disbelief while the barman simply shrugged his shoulders dismissively. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. 
Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Suddenly I heard laughter and I turned my head. See the middle-aged woman smirking cruelly, seemingly taking a sadistic pleasure at the violent events which had played out before. I shot her a disapproving look, but this only seemed to add to her amusement as her mocking laughter grew even louder. The courting couple at the bar had remained oblivious to the shooting when suddenly the gangster shot up from his chair, angrily remonstrating with his lover. What the hell, he shouted. I'll kill you, bitch. He threw a punch. The young woman reacted with astonishing speed and strength, grabbing his extended arm and snapping it like a twig. He howled out in pain as she threw his body against the bar. To my horror, the young woman transformed instantly, her formerly delicate features and kind eyes replaced by something primal. I watched on as fangs emerged from her mouth, and she bit deep into the helpless man's throat, ripping out his jugular and spraying dark blood all over the bar. She continued to feed as the man's body convulsed, the life slowly draining out of him. I found myself in a state of total shock, unable to believe the sudden descent into bloody violence that I'd just witnessed. What is wrong with you people, I exclaimed. Not really expecting an answer. While all this was happening, the older woman continued to laugh, her cruel cackle growing louder. There was another sound assaulting my ears. The white noise, that damn buzzing. I felt like it was inside my skull, so intense and overwhelming that I could barely think. I knew I had to get out of there. I'd die if I didn't. Fighting through the pain, I darted toward the rear of the bar, knowing it was my only way out. But the woman blocked my path. Having finished feeding off of her lover, his fresh blood dripping from her fangs as her eyes turned red like those of a demon. I ducked down and charged, somehow managing to avoid her grasp, as I sprinted for the exit. I nearly slipped and the blood spread all across the floor, but thankfully, I managed to stay on my feet leaping over the mutilated corpse of the shell-suit guy and never taking my eye off the back exit. I slammed through the door, emerging in what I would describe as an enclosed courtyard. Immediately, I found it difficult to breathe. The air was so heavy and stifling. I panted as I looked up above me and was horrified to see the sky was colored blood red, like I'd suddenly stepped out onto the surface of Mars courtyard had four high brick walls on each side, and the only visible exit was a heavy iron gate at the far end. But the path there was by no means clear. Guarding it was a huge figure, easily seven, if not eight feet tall, dressed in white robes with his face entirely covered by a hood. This hellish entity stood tall. His head bowed as he guarded the gate and barred my way. It was truly terrifying couldn't possibly be human, but what really scared me was the beast he held on a heavy chain leash. A dog was what one might call it, but the beast was the size of a dire wolf, 
its eyes burning a demonic red and its snout filled with razor-sharp teeth. The beast growled and pulled on its leash. Its hungry, fateful eyes were fixed upon me and I had no doubt it would tear me to shreds if released. I was frozen to the spot, paralyzed with terror, as I struggled to breathe in the dense air. In my panicked state of mind, I considered fleeing back to the bar, as bad as it was in there. I reckoned I had a better chance of survival, but I knew I would never make it. If this hooded psycho released his hound, the beast would be ripping me apart in mere seconds. I fell down to my knees, gasping for air as my eyes pleaded for mercy. The robed figure lifted his head ever so slightly, thankfully not revealing whatever horrors he hid underneath his hood. He loosened his grip, and the dog barked so viciously that I feared the worst. But then he lifted his other arm, pointing at me with his long bony finger as he spoke in a deep and inhuman voice. And what he said was, It's not your time. Go back need to be told twice, rapidly retreating as I sprinted back toward the bar's back entrance, breaking through and slamming the door shut behind me. It took me a moment to regain my breath and some degree of composure before I surveyed the scene before me. I expected to witness the same bloodbath I'd left behind, but to my astonishment, everything was back to normal, or at least as normal as things could be in a place like this. The floors were no longer covered with blood and viscera, and the victims of the extreme violence I'd witnessed were alive and well, with no apparent injuries. The shell suit guy was sitting in the same spot as before he got shot, glaring back across the bar, and the 20s gangster was back to flirting with the same woman who ripped his throat out, both acting as if nothing had happened. The older woman in furs was no longer in fits of laughter, and the barman had laid down his shotgun, instead clicking through the TV channels, eventually settling on the same soccer match played, with the severed head instead of a ball. None of it made any sense, and nothing had on this crazy night. It took me a moment to realize, but the room was different. The front door, formerly closed and padlocked, now lay open, revealing a stairway leading upward a ray of sunlight shining down, illuminating the otherwise grim and dark barroom. I should have headed straight for the newly revealed exit, but I wasn't quite ready to leave yet, so I called out to the barman to get his attention. Evening, sir, which poison? He replied cheerfully. I scratched my head in bewilderment, feeling a distinct sense of deja vu. Don't you remember me? I asked incredulously. Oh, of course I do, sir, he replied almost defensively. You came in for two drinks, went out back, and then you came back in. I shook my head in frustration, sitting on a stool and looking the barkeep straight in the eye. I don't want a drink, I stated firmly, but I do want some answers. Of course you do, he smirked. Shoot away, my friend. I had my chance now, but the word stuck in my throat. I really want to find out the truth. Part of me said no, but a bigger part of me needed to know. The first question was the hardest to ask, but I forced the words out of my mouth. Am I dead? The barkeep nodded as if he'd anticipated this very question. 
Well, technically, yes, he replied coyly. But once you walk up those stairs, you should be okay. He pointed toward the staircase leading up toward the light. But I wasn't ready to go yet. My next question was a natural follow-up. This place, is it Hell's waiting room or something like that? Maybe. I don't really know, to be honest, he replied. People come in here, I serve them drinks, and they go out the back. Most never return, and I don't know exactly where they end up. Heaven? Hell? Purgatory? Who knows? Not really my department. I just try to keep people comfortable and calm for as long as they're here. Some stay longer than others. Emotion to the motley crew of patrons spread across the bar room. Every now and again they send someone back through. People like you, who weren't quite ready to move on. My head was pounding and I still didn't understand. But who are you? I demanded. What's your purpose? I saw his eyes light up and his grin grew wider. I'm the barkeeper. Nothing more, nothing less. Look, buddy, I get it. You want me to give you all the answers, but unfortunately I can't. Folks come through here, and I do my best to guide them. He raised his hand, motioning to the rest of the bar room. I know this place sucks. Regrettably, I can do nothing about that. But I do my best for my customers. It's my job. This is where my responsibility ends. I don't mess with that scary son of a bitch at the back. Couldn't, even if I wanted to. I was literally flabbergasted. Come so far only to receive no real explanation. What was the point of it all? There was only one question left in my head, which I asked through clenched teeth. How can I avoid coming back here? Barkeep shrugged his shoulders. Honestly, I don't think he can. In the end, they all pass through here. My advice, for what it's worth, is to make the most of your time because life is chaotic and rarely fair. So, you've got to squeeze whatever happiness you can from the whole mess. Now, my friend, I think it's time you headed home. Until we meet again. I took one long last look at the barman and his ghostly patrons before turning my back and walking toward the door, ascending the staircase until the bright lights overwhelmed me. I felt like screaming out and thrashing the whole bar. What he told me was totally insane. Deep down, I knew the barkeeper spoke the truth. It was now or never. I had to leave this place or become trapped here forever. The rest of my tale is probably all too familiar. I awoke in a hospital, brought back to life by medical professionals, after being clinically dead for several minutes. I ultimately recovered and walked out of there to continue my life. I won't bore you with what happened to me afterward. Frankly, it doesn't really matter. I know I'll end up back in that damn place no matter what I do now or in the future. And honestly, this terrifies me. One thing brings me comfort, however. The barkeeper and his dedication to duty as he serves up drinks to the damned with a smile. So, even though I dread the day of my inevitable demise, I can at least look forward to savoring one last drink served up by one hell of a good bartender. Until we meet again, old friend.
I hope you enjoyed The Bar at the Edge of Eternity by Finn McCool, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed the tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support him by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash McCool. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash M-C-C-O-O-L. Wow, this is but one of his many names. Our author tonight hails from across the ocean, and you can see works collected by him as part of the anthology Harsh Worlds, available on Amazon. If you do decide to stop by the profile, please leave him a kind word and let him know you heard about him here on this show and that Otis sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. It would be worse than to spend eternity in a bar. There are plenty of other weird places open late into the night that could hold many unfortunate souls, most of which I could describe here if I was willing to go into detail, which for your sake I won't. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. But let's take a look at the border for a moment. No, not the border you might think of when you hear that phrase, but a border from some time ago that was fraught with violence and terror, fighting between Irish Republicans and Unionists that was often referred to as the Troubles. The story you're about to hear is from a veteran of that conflict and has less to do with the fighting more to do with a very unpleasant event that took place in a group of teenagers that might not be who they appear to be. Without further ado, I present to you Border Town. I'll start this account by admitting I was a member of the Provisional Irish Republican Army during the 1970s. I joined as a volunteer in the Southdown Brigade in late 71 and was active along the border up until my arrest and conviction in 1975. I make no apologies for my involvement in the armed struggle, although I'm not proud of everything I did during that time. And when I look back now, I do question whether all the bloodshed was worth it. Nevertheless, I'm not here to confess everything I did back in the day. Many of the incidents I was involved in are still technically open investigations, and I have no intention of incriminating myself after the fact. I'm an old man now and in poor health, 
I can't go back to prison at my age, and I'm in no condition to go on the run. Ultimately, I've come to terms with most of what I did. It was a war, after all. It's one incident that I cannot forget. An episode that haunts my nightmares to this very day. I've decided to tell my story now because I believe the victims should be remembered and because their families deserve to know the truth. I'm just sorry it's taken me so long to speak out. Well, I might as well start at the beginning. I grew up in Newry, a medium-sized town located in the southern part of County Down, just a few miles north of the British-imposed border in Ireland. Nury was and remains a town with a substantial Catholic and nationalist majority. Nevertheless, we lived within a Protestant and Unionist-dominated statelet and were treated like second-class citizens, discriminated against in employment and housing, and kept in our place by the RUC and B-specials. Our family was a poor one. Unemployment was rife in Uri back then. And my father, a plasterer by trade, was often out of work. My mother would occasionally hold down cleaning jobs to supplement our meager family income. But otherwise, we were dependent on the dole, the pitifully small state benefits paid out to us by the Unionist government. I grew up with four younger siblings, two brothers and two sisters. I know how tough it was for my parents to pay the rent and keep food on the table. They did their best, but often we'd have to go without. I left school at 15 and soon realized I'd have little prospect of finding steady employment. I managed to get the odd laboring job working alongside my father on building sites. But when work was slow, and it usually was, I'd be standing in the dole queue alongside most of my friends and contemporaries. Even so... I wasn't political at that age and was more interested in drinking with my mates, listening to rock and roll and chasing girls. But things changed for me during the violent summer of 1969. Our people had been marching for civil rights for about two years by this point. Our protests were peaceful, but the RUC and Protestant extremists tried to beat us off the streets. The situation came to a head in August 69, and the police attempted to invade the Bogside area in Derry, but were met with a mass uprising by the local people. Then all hell broke loose on the streets of Belfast, as loyalist mobs burnt hundreds of Catholic families out of their homes, as the RUC looked on. Soon the British government sent in their army, deploying troops onto the streets, ostensibly to keep the peace between the warring communities. But as far as the nationalist community in Newry was concerned, there were an army of occupation sent over here to keep us rebellious Irish in our place, just as the English have done to us for centuries. Things escalated over the next two years as the Brits harassed, arrested, beat, and shot down our people with impunity. In August 71, they brought an internment without trial lifting hundreds of Catholic men, most of them being completely innocent. And then, in October, three local men were shot down by soldiers in Nuri Town Center. They were all unarmed. There was heavy rioting at the men's funerals, with me and my friends getting beaten by baton-wielding troops. 
This was the final straw for me. The next day, I went out and joined the IRA. So that's how I became involved in the armed struggle against British imperialism. Judge me, if you will, but those were different times, and I just felt fully justified in fighting back. In any event, I'm not intending to go into details about my activities. Suffice to say, I was very active during 1972, which was the most violent year of the conflict. Back then, my comrades and I truly believed we were on the cusp of victory, that one final push would drive the Brits into the sea. But of course, this didn't happen, and the violence continued without respite. The events I will describe here occurred in October 1973. By that time, I was an experienced operative and had risen through the ranks of the movement. Fortunately, I also come to the attention of the RUC Special Branch and, by extension, the British military. They knew my name and that I was an active volunteer from the town. They didn't have enough evidence to convict me in court, but this hardly mattered since I could be detained indefinitely under the Special Powers Act if they caught me. For this reason, I spent much of my time in Dundalk, a town just on the other side of the border, and therefore outside of British jurisdiction. This didn't stop the Brits from harassing my family, unfortunately. None of my family members were involved with the IRA, but the Crown forces couldn't get a hold of me, so they targeted my loved ones instead. My family home was raided on a regular basis, with floorboards being torn up, furniture ripped open, and family pictures and religious icons smashed. My brothers were beaten up and lewd comments were directed toward my sisters. Things took on a more sinister tone when two squatties left a funeral wreath on my parents' doorstep. The card attached had my name on it, along with a message reading, May he rest in pieces. The death threat didn't bother me too much. When I joined the IRA, I knew I'd be targeted by British agents and their local loyalist proxies. Nevertheless, my mother was very upset by the incident. It broke my heart, but I knew I couldn't go see my family until this threat had been lifted. But the Brits' intimidation of my loved ones only increased my hatred of them, and I vowed to redouble my efforts in targeting the Crown forces. Ambushes and gun battles along the border were regular occurrences back then. However, in October 1973... The brigade command assigned to me a special mission in my hometown, an operation they wanted dealt with discreetly. Before I describe this forgotten incident, I think it's worth adding some context about what was happening at the time. As the conflict raged on, the north of Ireland was suddenly plagued by rumors of occult practices, witchcraft, and satanic rituals. As I recall, began with a story in the press about an alleged animal sacrifice on the Copeland Islands off the coast of the Ards Peninsula. There were reports of a clandestine gathering on the island by persons unknown, and several slaughtered sheep were found at the site, supposedly having been sacrificed in a dark ritual of some variety. The details were pretty vague, as tends to be the case in stories such as these. Sometime later, a young boy was brutally murdered in Belfast, his body burnt and dumped into the River Lagan. The 
This was a particularly tragic killing that didn't appear to be linked to the conflict. Some believe there was a sexual motive to the murder, but others thought the boy had been sacrificed by the same shadowy cult responsible for the Copeland's incident. Well, these rumors continued to spread, with reports of similar incidents and rituals all across the North, including accounts of young people engaging in seances in attempts to contact those killed in the conflict. The IRA regarded these rumors with a large degree of skepticism. We believe the stories were being deliberately spread by the British in an attempt to weaken our support base. After all, we'd all been brought up in the Catholic faith and many IRA volunteers were still devout, attending Mass regularly and reciting the Rosary. Many of us struggled to come to terms with the violent acts we committed in the name of freedom when we remembered the teachings of the Church and the commandments, particularly, Thou shalt not kill. It would certainly be in the Brits' interest to encourage the idea that violence was corrupting the youth and leading them down a path of darkness. They wanted our people to live in fear, to believe that there was something evil occurring behind locked doors, with demons and monsters lurking in the shadows, waiting for their opportunity to strike. At the time, I didn't believe a word of it. I considered myself a modern revolutionary, committed to building a new society free from the superstitions and prejudices of the past. And so, when an incident occurred in my hometown of Newry, I was keen to lead the IRA's investigation. I wanted to prove, once and for all, that this whole thing was a hoax. What I saw and experienced over those few days in October 1973 changed my understanding of the world in ways I could never have previously imagined. It all started one autumn night. There was an old ruined castle on a hillside overlooking the town. It's what remains of a fort dating back to Cromwell's time and was known locally as Chucky Eddie's. The Brits spotted a fire up there one night and sent a patrol to investigate. What exactly the Brits found up there remains something of a mystery and various different stories did the rounds at the time. What all accounts agree on is that a group of teenagers, probably drunk or on drugs, had slaughtered a goat, hanging its body from a crudely built stand, while the teenagers sat in a circle around an open fire, reciting an unknown chant in unison. A teenage girl was said to have drunk a cup of the goat's blood. Her brother had been killed during the riot the previous year, and she believed she could contact his spirit by conducting this bizarre ritual. Three teenagers were arrested at the scene, a blood-drinking girl and two boys. The Brits released them without a charge a couple of days later. Accounts of the incident soon spread over the town. The story even appeared in the local press. There were, however, details that the Brits never made public. We heard through our sources how the four soldiers, who discovered the gruesome scene, were unable to report for duty the next day spoke of witnessing something evil on that darkened hillside, an unnatural entity that they could not describe. All four were taken off frontline duty and sent for psychological evaluation. One soldier later attempted suicide. Bizarre and implausible as it was, 
The incident caused a lot of concern in the local community. Parents refused to allow their children out after dark. People started questioning whether the violence had unleashed a terrible evil upon our people. News of the event soon reached the IRA Army Council, and they decided to launch their own investigation, which I was ordered to lead. The leadership believed the entire incident had been concocted by the Brits in order to undermine our support base. Initially, I agreed with their assessment. Our orders were to pick up the three teenagers and detain them for questioning. I hoped that the kids had been duped or were off their heads on drugs. If it turned out they had knowingly cooperated with the Brits, then that would become a much more serious matter. Either way, we decided that we needed to get to the bottom of this and nip the rumors in the blood. I had two volunteers to assist me with the operation. There was my best mate, Mal, gone to school together and joined the IRA at the same time, sticking together through thick and thin. I loved and trusted Mal like he was my own brother. Also with us was Seamus, six foot two, built like a brick house. Seamus was one of the toughest individuals I'd ever met and was totally fearless. I once saw him take on an entire British squad with his bare fists. It took six of the bastards to eventually take him down and bundle him into a back with a Seracon APC. Mal and Seamus were good men and brave volunteers. They both deserved much better than what happened to them. If I knew then how it would turn out, I would have never involved my two best friends. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The three of us drove around Nuri Town, avoiding army patrols and roadblocks, as we called on the teenagers and picked them up one by one. Surprisingly, we had few complaints from the families and no resistance whatsoever from the teenagers. For obvious reasons, no one wanted to get picked up and interrogated by the IRA. It usually doesn't end well for those being questioned. But these kids didn't seem scared in the slightest. In fact, they showed no emotion at all. None of the three spoke a single word as we drove them to the safe house on the edge of town and marched them inside. This was our first indication that something wasn't right. Things only got more disturbing from this point onward. Now, I'm not going to reveal the names of the three young people. Their families still live in Nuri, and I want to protect their privacy. And so, for the purposes of this account, I'll refer to the boys as Patty and Mick, and the girl as Mary. Once we had secured the safe house, we placed Patty, Mick, and Mary in separate bedrooms and began to question them. We got straight down to it, bombarding them with questions about the incident up at the castle. What were they doing there? What did they tell the Brits? And so on. And what did we get from them? Nothing. Not a single word. All three just stared blankly at us without a grain of emotion on their faces. It was like they weren't even there. The lights were on, but nobody was home. I've never seen anything like it. I'm not sure if any of the three even blinked. This went on for several hours. Our line of questioning became increasingly aggressive, but it made no difference. At one point, Seamus lost his head and started to slap one of the lads around. He was frustrated by the lack of progress and wanted to get a rise out of the boy. Seamus hit the lad three or four times before we pulled him away. 
Now, as I said before, Seamus was a big lad and strong as an ox. When he hit you, you felt it. But not this boy. He barely reacted to the hard slaps and didn't show any signs of pain or distress. His cheek was bruised and his nose bloody, but he didn't squeal or flinch. The wee bastard just kept on staring at us blankly as if to say, Is that the best you can do? I decided to call it a night at that point. Clearly these youngsters were tougher than they looked. We thought perhaps they actually were working for the Brits and received anti-interrogation training. In any event, we decided to let them stew overnight and start at it again in the morning. The three of us split up for the night. We didn't want to risk all of us being arrested together if the Brits raided the house. Now went home to his family while I traveled to another safe house outside of the town. Seamus volunteered to stay at the house overnight and guard the prisoners. We were a bit worried about leaving him alone with them, given what had happened earlier. But Seamus assured us that he'd calm down and would be fine. He was an experienced volunteer and we trusted him. I remember not sleeping well that night. I couldn't stop thinking of these creepy kids and their blank expressions as they glared at us in complete silence. I had a bad feeling about the whole situation. Something clearly wasn't right, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Still, nothing could have prepared me for what happened next. I wasn't present for the events of the next morning. The Brits had set up roadblocks close to the safe house I was staying, and so I needed to stay put until they left the vicinity. I learned what had happened after speaking with Mal that afternoon and could barely contain my shock and utter dismay. Mal had arrived at the safe house on time that morning, prepared to relieve Seamus from his guard duties. He arrived to discover a disturbing scene. Seamus was upstairs, standing outside the locked door of the room containing Mary, the girl who drunk the goat's blood. Mal said he could hear the girl whispering softly through the door, while Seamus stood and listened intently. Maul claimed he couldn't make out what she was saying, but he told me it was an unsettling tone to the whispering, sinister and almost inhuman. What was most surprising, however, was Seamus's behavior. Mal described the look on our friend's face, white and pale, like he'd seen a ghost. Seamus appeared to be struck in some sort of trance. Mal had to physically shake him back to reality. Mal asked him what the hell was wrong, but Seamus couldn't answer. He merely muttered something about having to go and promptly did so, leaving a perplexed Mal on his own. After briefly checking on the prisoners and finding no change, Mal sat downstairs and waited for me to arrive. But two hours later, he received a frantic telephone call from Seamus's sister. Seamus was dead, and the RUC were in the process of covering his body from the canal. We later spoke with several locals who'd been in the vicinity of the canal that morning and had witnessed Seamus's suicide. The city acted quickly before anyone could intervene, holding onto a concrete block and simply walking off the edge of the bank. Apparently, he sank straight to the bottom of the canal, making no effort to struggle or prevent himself from drowning. There was nothing anyone could have done. Al and I, of course, were devastated. 
We'd known Seamus since school and had been through hell and back with him over the previous few years. Neither of us had any inkling he was suicidal, and he'd show no signs of depression up until that morning. Mal was convinced that the girl had said something to Seamus that made him kill himself. I told him that was bollocks, and he needed to get a grip. Our friend's death was a tragedy, but we're IRA volunteers and we still had a job to do. It took most of the day to deal with the aftermath of Seamus' tragic death, and so we were unable to recommence our interrogation of the three teenagers. We brought them food and water, but they wouldn't touch it and didn't even react to our presence. That night, Mal and I both felt drained and exhausted. We decided that we would both stay at the safe house in case any further incidents, uh, sleeping on two sofas in the sitting room, while the teenagers remained locked in up the stairs. We settled in for the night and managed to get a couple hours shut-eye, only to be abruptly awoken around 2 a.m. I woke up first, having been disturbed by a soft whispering coming from upstairs. I froze when I realized it was the girl's voice. I couldn't hear the words she spoke, but there was a deeply unsettling tone to the whispers, just as Marl had described... I feared what would come next, but found myself frozen, unable to act. This went on for several moments before there was a sudden crash, followed by the sound of glass shattering. The din awoke Maul, and we both jumped up and piled up the stairs, determined to find out what the hell was going on. We heard a ruckus emanating from the first bedroom, which held Mick, one of the teenage boys. We unlocked the door and barged inside, only to discover a horrific scene. The bedroom window had been smashed from the inside, allowing the cold night air into the room. Meanwhile, Mick lay on the floor, blood pouring from an open wound in his neck, spraying all over the worn-out carpet. We quickly concluded that he'd used a shard of broken glass to cut his own throat. Mal and I ran to his side, holding down his thrashing body, as we tried desperately to stop the bleeding, but it was already too late. And Mick bled to death within a matter of seconds. It was a terrible way to go. But when I look into Mick's eyes in his last moment, I saw no pain or fear. In fact, he looked at peace. Mal and I were deeply disturbed by what we had just witnessed. But we quickly regained some level of composure and went to check on the other prisoners. We opened the door to Patty's room next, discovering his lifeless body hanging from the ceiling. The boy had fashioned a noose from electrical wiring he'd pulled from the walls, using it to hang himself. We quickly cut him down, but once again, we were too late. Patty was no longer breathing. Two suicides, both occurring simultaneously. It made no sense. But the facts were undeniable. Mick and Patty were both dead, we checked on Mary next, expecting the worst when we unlocked the door, and sheepishly entered her room. Nothing could have prepared Mal and me for what we discovered inside. Mary was standing in the middle of the darkened room, directly facing the doorway. It was as if she was waiting for us to come to her. She stood with her hands by her side. I noticed her nails were bloody deep scratches visible on her arms and legs, as if she had been trying to clot something, 
clawing underneath her skin. Her dark, straggly hair hung loose over her face, and beneath it lay a smile as wicked as anything I've ever seen, eyes wild with menace and hatred. I didn't think this was Mary anymore. The teenage girl had been transformed into something monstrous, her innocence drained and replaced by pure evil. I stood, frozen to the spot, unable to avert my gaze. Mal reacted angrily, pushing me aside, striking out at Mary, punching her hard across her face. You bloody bitch! You did this! You killed Seamus and the Moose! Mary barely reacted to the punch. She merely lifted her head back up, looking Mal straight in the eye as her grin widened. And then she began to laugh her mouth emitting a cruel, sadistic, guttural laughter that was painful to hear. Mal completely lost the plot at this stage. He screamed manically in a futile attempt to drown out the wicked laughter. Shut up! Shut up! He lashed out, attempting to strike the girl again. This time she fought back, hurtling herself forward and physically biting Mal's hand her teeth burrowing deep into his flesh. Mal screamed out in agony, prompting me to finally intervene. I darted forward, shoving Mary, or whatever she was now, back into the corner of the room while simultaneously dragging the wounded Mal out through the doorway before slamming the door shut and locking it. We retreated down the stairs, Mal clutching hold of his bleeding hand, and all the time the god-awful laughter continued mocking us as we fled in defeat from the horrific scene. We went to a sympathetic local doctor to get Mal's hands stitched up and bandaged, after which we worked up the courage to return to the safe house, knowing we needed to deal with the two dead teenage boys. I won't go into details here, but Patty and Mick's bodies were removed from the house and ultimately returned to their respective families for a proper burial expected recriminations and anger from the parents, and so was surprised by their reactions. Both sets of parents were, of course, devastated, but they seemed resigned to their son's tragic fates. I later spoke with Patty's mother, and she told me she knew they had lost their son already, that something evil had taken his soul that night at the castle, and so the death of his physical body came as something of a relief. At least now he was at peace. In any event, we still had the dilemma of what to do with Mary. She'd calmed down somewhat after the earlier incident. Thankfully, her sadistic mirth had stopped. Mal and I discussed our next move, and we agreed to do something which would have been unthinkable just a couple of days before. We called in a priest. This decision wasn't taken lightly. Apart from anything else, we were reluctant to bring an outsider into this already messed-up situation. Nevertheless, we knew we were way out of our depth and had no rational explanation for the occurrences of the last few days. Also, we held out a slim hope that Mary could still be saved, that whatever evil entity had possessed her could be exercised and her soul restored. The priest we reached out to was sympathetic to our cause, and, if rumors were to be believed, had dealt with similar incidences of witchcraft and demonic possession in the past. I won't name him here, but this priest 
was a grizzled veteran of the church, a devout and fearless servant of God. He came out the next evening, equipped with a personalized exorcism kit he carried in a leather briefcase. He spoke with us for a time as we described the events of the previous few days. The father seemed confident as he ascended the staircase with his Bible, crucifix, and briefcase in hand. We offered to accompany him into the room, but the priest insisted he'd be safe. His God would be by his side. We didn't argue, assuming the old man knew his business. Neither Mal nor I were in a hurry to step back inside that room. We remained downstairs and listened in silence as the priest unlocked the bedroom door and stepped inside. We heard him speaking for several minutes, reciting the Lord's Prayer and reading verses of Scripture. After a while, his volume decreased and we could no longer hear his words. And then Mary replied. We heard the same soft whispering as before, inaudible to us but laced with a sinister undertone. Immediately I feared the worst, remembering what had happened to Seamus and the boys. I stood up and prepared to intervene, but Mal held me back, telling me to wait and let the father do his holy work. I should have listened to my first instincts. A few tension-filled minutes later, all went silent. Then we heard the door open and a figure walked out, closing the door behind them. I shot up from my chair and saw the priest slowly walking down the staircase. It looked like all the blood had been drained from his face, and his hands shook ever slightly as he grasped hold of the banister. Father, are you all right? I called out in concern. He didn't answer and didn't even acknowledge my presence. Instead, he pushed past Mal and me and slowly made his way to the small kitchen. Al and I followed, trying in vain to get his attention. He made his way to the kitchen drawer and removed a fork. Before either of us could react, he raised the fork, violently stabbed it through his right eye. Jesus Christ, I screamed, as I darted forward to intervene. But before I could, the priest had repeated the savage act of self-mutilation, jamming the fork into his left eye socket, blinding himself in the most horrific way possible. He didn't scream or cry out, didn't even flinch. Never seen anything like it before or since. The next few minutes passed by in pandemonium, as Mal and I frantically tried to stop the bleeding, while all the time we could hear the sadistic, familiar laughter coming from up the stairs. I never learned what exactly occurred between the priest and Mary during their time alone in the room. Many years I did feel guilty about involving the priest and for what subsequently happened to him. He retired from the priesthood after that ugly incident and was sent to live out the rest of his days in a church-run institution located in a remote part of the country. Needless to say, the damage to his eyes was so severe that he was permanently blinded. It was some years later before I worked up the courage to visit him. After the pleasantries were out of the way, I asked him what happened that night, hoping to gain some insight into those horrific events. The old priest didn't answer me directly, but he did say this. My son, don't you know it's a cardinal sin to take one's own life? If I was not a holy man, I would have taken a knife from that drawer and cut my throat. But let me tell you, son, 
If you had seen what I saw that night when I stared into that creature's eyes, you would have done the same. The horrors she showed me were never meant for mortal eyes. I shuddered at hearing those words and asked no more questions. In any event, on that night we managed to save the priest's life and got a neighbor to drive him to hospital. And so, once again, Mal and myself were left holding the bag. And we needed to make a decision. We decided at that moment that Mary was gone for good. And whatever evil had overtaken her body would not stop spreading pain, misery, and death. There was really only one option left to us. We needed to kill this monster. Mal and I vowed to carry out the killing that very night. We knew there would be repercussions for going against our orders, but we were no longer caring. The two of us went to a nearby arms dump where we recovered two loaded handguns. I took a thirty-eight special revolver, and Mal armed himself with a Colt forty-five pistol. I vividly remember creeping up the stairs to the safe house with our guns in hand. We moved quietly, fearing the entity locked upstairs would realize our malicious intentions. I recall how nervous Mal appeared, his bandaged hands shaking almost uncontrollably. Looking back, I should have sent him home and dealt with the situation myself. Although, giving all Mal had been through, I doubt he would have obeyed such an order. His hand continued to shake as we reached for the doorknob and turned. At the same time, I kicked the door open, and we both rushed forward, fully prepared to pump Mary's possessed body full of lead. We were both frozen in shock by what we saw. Mary, or whatever she'd turned into, was hanging from the ceiling. Her fingernails had become sharp talons, and she used them to dig into the plaster, allowing her to hang upside down like a bat in a cave. Her neck was bent back in a way that shouldn't have been physically possible, and she glared down at us with inhuman eyes that were now entirely black. She was still smiling, her mouth now filled with razor-sharp teeth, like those of a crocodile. Jesus, I swore aloud. I was simultaneously awestruck and terrified. Never in my wildest nightmares had I imagined such a monster could exist. We were both frozen in fear, and our hesitancy allowed the creature ample opportunity to strike first. She, or it, shrieked loudly and pounced, slashing out with its claws and knocking both Mal and me off our feet with immense force. The creature had escaped its prison, and it wasted no time tearing down the staircase at incredible speed. I got back on my feet quickly, picking up my revolver and firing down the staircase, but I missed. Suddenly the monster had smashed through the front door and ran out into the street. Maul pushed past me, sprinting down the stairs and out the door. I've got to stop that bitch, he cried. I called out after my friend, telling him to stop, but he wouldn't listen. Besides, I knew he was right. We couldn't let his hideous creature escape into our community. So I ran after Mal, trying to keep up, but without much success. Mal had been a track runner in school, so he was considerably faster than me. We tore through the maze of back streets during the desperate chase. I lost sight of Mary, but could still hear her demonic laughter reverberating through the concrete jungle. 
Suddenly, we exited the estate and ran out onto the open ground close to the town center. I could see Mal running in front of me, but then I spotted several figures approaching from our left-hand side. I turned my head and was horrified to see a patrol of British soldiers, all armed with either rifles or submachine guns. The Brit commander quickly spotted Mal, raising his SLR, and screamed, Halt! Rub your gun, you mick bastard! Mal stopped abruptly, turning to face the British soldier. I don't know what went through my friend's head in that final moment. Perhaps he was still pumped up with adrenaline after the chase, or maybe his heart was filled with reckless defiance. In any event, he showed no fear when he raised his handgun and aimed toward the enemy. But the Brit had the drop on him, firing a single round from his SLR, which tore through Mal's chest. The whole world seemed to slow down as I looked on in, in impotent horror, watching as my lifelong friend fell dead in the middle of the street. I screamed out in grief, unwittingly revealing my presence to the enemy. The second soldier opened fire on me, spraying rounds from his sterling submachine gun. Bullets hit the ground inches from my feet, forcing me into action. I fired a couple of shots from my revolver to cover my retreat. I frantically sprinted back toward the housing estate. Somehow I made it to cover under a hail of bullets, and I escaped into the labyrinth of back streets, eventually finding sanctuary in the house of a sympathizer. And all the time, between the gunshots and shouting Brits, I could hear the cruel mocking laughter of Mary, cutting through the cold night air. The next day, the Brits released a statement in the press, saying the IRA had unsuccessfully attempted to ambush one of their patrols in Nuri, with one gunman killed at the scene, while a second escaped and remained at large. The IRA soon released their own statement, effectively saying the same thing. The cover story made no sense. We would never have sent two men, armed with only handguns, to take on a larger and much better armed enemy formation. But it was a convenient lie that suited both sides to maintain. Nobody wanted to admit the truth of what happened, really. Mal received a full IRA funeral with all the trappings, including a military parade through the town and a firing party over his gravesite. I couldn't meet the eyes of his family during the proceedings. The guilt I carried was too great. And what about Mary? Well, she's still officially listed as a missing person to this day. It's widely believed that the IRA executed her and buried her body at a secret location. But this isn't what happened. Over the years, I've heard rumors and whispered stories of a young girl with black eyes who would sporadically pop up in small villages and isolated farms along the border, terrorizing the local population. It was said she would appear on your doorstep in the dead of night, her cruel laughter filling the air. Those who saw her were said to be cursed, with a bad fortune coming to them and their families. Also, there were said to be spates of suicide in areas where sightings were reported. As for me, after a tough debriefing from the IRA's internal security unit, I was allowed to return to active service. I tried to put the ugly incident behind me, but I couldn't. I was never as committed to the cause after that point. I got sloppy, and eventually the Brits caught up with me, 
arresting me with a car full of explosives and ammunition during the spring of 1975. I was sentenced to 10 years for membership in an illegal organization and intent to endanger life. I did my time in long cash, going on the blanket with my fellow Republican prisoners in an attempt to gain political status. I saw 10 of my comrades die on hunger strike during our standoff with Thatcher's government. I got released in the mid-1980s. The conflict was still going on, but the IRA leadership were satisfied that I'd done my bit for the cause, so I was allowed to retire into relative obscurity. I saw my release as a second chance of life, one I intended to grasp with both hands. I met a girl and fell in love, marrying her and starting a family. Work was hard to come by given my status as an ex-prisoner, but I got by with odd building jobs and driving a taxi. A few years later, the IRA and loyalist paramilitaries declared ceasefires and entered into peace talks. I support the Good Friday Agreement when it was signed. I didn't deliver what I'd fought for and my comrades had died for. Not even close. Nevertheless, times had moved on and I didn't want my children growing up with the violence I'd seen. They deserved so much better. Well, like I said, I knew I needed to tell the truth about what happened back in 73, if only for the sake of the families. But there's another reason, too. Namely, what happened to me six months ago. I was out shopping in a supermarket in the town, picking up some sweets for my grandkids. I always like to spoil them when they come to visit. It was quiet at the time, so I had the aisle to myself, or so I thought. Yeah, I remember seeing a figure out of the corner of my eye, and immediately I felt a cold chill running up my spine, and all my hair stood up on end. I slowly turned my head and looked down the aisle, and the dread overcame me. It was her, Mary in her demonic form, with dark black eyes and ghostly white skin. She hadn't aged a day in 45 years. I stood frozen in fear, as helpless as a deer caught in headlights. And then she smiled. Same hideous grin from all those years ago, bringing back a flood of horrific memories. I knew what was coming next. The laugh, cruel, mocking, and sadistic, and every bit as horrifying it was all those years ago. Suddenly, I felt a tightness in my chest and a shooting pain in my arm. I couldn't breathe or stand on my own two feet, and I found myself falling as the world went black. I could still hear her fateful mirth as I drifted out of consciousness. Evidently, I suffered a major heart attack but survived. I'm currently on the waiting list for bypass surgery. I don't know whether I'll be around for much longer, and so I'm telling my story while I still can. That monster is still out there. It feeds on misery, pain, and suffering, and given the way the world's going, it's only going to get stronger. I'm too old and weak to continue the fight, so someone else needs to take up the mantle. We need to stop this evil before it's too late.
I hope you enjoyed Border Town by Finn McCool as performed by yours truly. If you've enjoyed what you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash McCool. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash M-C-C-O-O-L. Again, you can not only find his work under a bevy of strange names, but a collection of stories, Harsh Worlds, contains more stories if you dare to give them a try. As a reminder, if you do decide to give tonight's talented author's stories a read, please consider leaving them a quality review and a kind word, or a thoughtful public comment and an upvote. And be sure to let them know you heard about them here on this program, and that me, Otis Jari, sent you. It means more to me than you can imagine, and I'm sure he would very much appreciate it as well. Thanks again for your support of this show, and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you, personally, for joining me on this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you've enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by your iTunes page, or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcast, and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium, extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyre channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Gyre. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of 
narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>you know and trust is now Angie and we're so much more than just a list we still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly we can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish so remember Angie's list is now Angie and we're here to get your job done right get started at Angie.com that's A-N-G-I or download the app today Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.